All glory be to God. Amen. Amen. Church, uh, the day is finally here, right? Woo! Yeah. Um, before we get started this morning, I just want to take a moment to thank so many of you who worked really hard preparing for this, okay? Uh, worked on teams, prayed for us, worked on specific projects, all of that. Uh, I am a new pastor, so I know better, but I still know better than to like start naming names or I'll forget someone and get in trouble. But uh, I, you know who you are. Uh, a lot of people put a lot of work into this, and I want to thank you for serving Antioch Church and serving the Lord in the way that you've done that. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. That's going to be on page 917 if you're using the Pew Bible. My kids have a show that they watch called Is It Cake? Uh, if you haven't seen the show, then what happens is you watch these incredible bakers put together all these different elements and layers for a cake that is designed to look like some everyday object. Then they step back and they show off their masterpiece to the judges and everyone marvels at that masterpiece. Like, how did you make a cake that looks like a bag of tools? And then they go on and they cut into the cake and examine it layer by layer. That's something of how we're going to proceed with this beautiful passage that is before us today. This text is jam-packed in its density. It's weighty in its subject matter. Predestination, adoption, redemption, the mystery of his will, the sealing of the Spirit, and then add to that it's highly technical with all of the clauses and the pronouns and such to be ironed out. The great Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, took over 22 weeks to preach through the verses before us today. So today, I, this is what I want us to do. I want us to see the structure of this passage, and once we can see it, how it's put together, then I want us to step back and view it as a whole, beholding, more so marveling at the big picture and then over the next three weeks, we will go back and cut it up layer by layer to chew on the details. So today, today, I want us to walk out of here on this first Sunday gathering in the history of Antioch Church with one exquisite, foundational, paradigm-shifting, trajectory-setting, mind-blowing, affection-shaping truth. All about his glory. All about his glory. The plan of the Father before the foundation of the world to set apart a people for himself, that's about his glory. The work of the Son shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sin, that's about his glory. The work of the Spirit applying faith to you and sealing you, that's about his glory. As the text lays out for 
us all of the beautiful blessings of the gospel, all of the wonderful grace poured out lavishly on us, we are not the end game for all of that. We are the undeserved recipients of his grace, immeasurably blessed along the way in God's unflinching quest to receive the glory that he is rightly due. So as we see that in our passage this morning, my prayer is it will lead us to behold his glory anew and then turn, look at our own lives with the spirit-wrought introspection, asking ourselves, am I living with that as my highest purpose? Is my family living with God's glory as our highest aim? And are we, as Antioch Church, doing all that we are doing with God's glory as our north star that guides all that we do? Let's read, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the gracious gift that it is and that by it you reveal yourself to us. Father, as we come to your word, help us to submit under it. Father, I pray that you would use your word now to comfort those that need to be comforted, encourage those that need to be encouraged, convict those that need to be convicted. And Lord, I pray that you would use your word to make us into a people that is conformed to your image. Mighty God and merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you 
from the bottom of our hearts that this, this seed of your word, now sown among us, may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it. But that a seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth 30, 60, or a hundredfold as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. In the first two verses, Paul begins his letter to the churches around Ephesus with a fairly customary greeting. Note from there that Paul is writing to the saints. That is, he's writing to believers. In the opening verses of his letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, Paul elaborated on the word saints, saying that that church was called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the word here, saint, is the noun form of the same word, holy. So as Paul writes to believers, he calls them all holy ones. And while some would have us believe that saint is a title reserved for like the upper echelon heroes of the faith, the Bible applies the term to all who have been made holy by the blood of Jesus. So it's not just St. Mark or St. Paul or St. Augustine who get that title. According to the Bible, it's also for ordinary saints like us, St. Austin, St. Randy, St. Elizabeth. If you'd like, you can even address each other that way tonight at base group. Uh, kids, until your parents tell you to stop. So. Now, the fact that Paul is writing to the believers is important to keep in mind all throughout the letter because it then frames all of his yous, his yours, his y'alls, his we's, his us's, all throughout the letter. When he uses those pronouns, we know that he has believers in view because the letter is addressed to the saints. Further, this letter, like all of his letters to the churches, is meant to be read aloud. It was meant to, that's what he wrote it to. He wrote it to the churches, and it was meant to be read aloud. And Ephesians, in particular, was likely intended to be read aloud in multiple churches there around Ephesus. So, with that in mind, I would like to issue a little bit of a challenge. I want to challenge you, church to find a moment once per week as we walk through this book of Ephesians, once per week to read aloud the whole book of Ephesians. It'll take you 20 minutes. Read it by yourself, read it together as a family, but the practice of reading it all together will help you see all of the connections. Having greeted the saints, Paul jumps right into the meat of it in the body of the letter, beginning in verse 3. Verse 3 and following follows a common pattern of an Old Testament blessing. In this pattern, the blessing begins by ascribing praise to God, specifying who God is, and then goes on to, see, to say why he is to be praised. So as in Genesis 24, 27... We see, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, 
who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. We see the pattern. Ascribe praise to God. Blessed be the Lord. Who is he? He's the God of Abraham. What has he done? He has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Most of the sections of Psalms end with some kind of blessing like this. As in Psalm 72, 18, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Again, ascribe praise to God. Who is he? He's the God of Israel. And what has he done? He alone does wondrous things. So then we get to Ephesians 1, 3, and Paul takes the same form, the same outline, and look what he does with it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ascribe praise to God. Blessed be the God. From the very outset, from the very outset, we have to see that all of verse 3 through 14 are an outburst of praises being ascribed to God. Even as we get into the details of what he has done that we are praising him for, we must keep in mind that all that follows is expounding on why we must ascribe to God the glory that he is due. It's all there to reverberate for his glory. Then who is he? He's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an explicitly Christian confession taken up by Paul here, also in 2 Corinthians, but also by Peter in the book of 1 Peter. The God of Abraham, yes. The God of Israel, yes. But now revealed as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, in effect, make no mistake, that's who I'm talking about. And then what has he done? In short form, Blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In the longer expounded form, all of what follows through verse 14, given as a praise to God. So don't miss this. Don't miss this, church. Some of you, some of you hear that we're going through the book of Ephesians and you start geeking out a little bit because you know just how weighty and theological this first section is, okay? Good, good on you. All of us should, young or old, man or woman, love, love, love to look deeply into the truths of God. But in our theologizing in our systematics and in our study, we have to take care that we don't lose sight of the fact that a deeper knowledge of God must always well up in us a deeper praise to God. To know of him more must be to revere him more. Our theology must always result in doxology. So, geek out, study deeply, but take a breath once in a while, lean back in your chair, and worship. Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. But listen, for others of you, others of you, you need to see this. 
your worship of God necessarily needs knowledge of God. Worship is fueled by his word. Our praises must be more than mere platitudes. Our praises must be rooted deeply in the self-revelation of God to us. Our doxology needs theology, or we risk it becoming some banal sentimentality. Which is to say, sometimes you hear people try to make a virtue out of not knowing doctrine and stuff, right? They say, I'm just simple. I don't do all that doctrine and stuff. I'm not buying it. Say, I just have a childlike faith. That's not what that means. The New Testament is full of calls to sound doctrine, to the knowledge of God. In the book of Jude, who is it that's supposed to be contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? He's not writing to other apostles. He's not writing to scholars. He's not writing to even elders. He's writing to the members of the church, telling them that they need to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That means the members have to know doctrine. All of us should be growing in the knowledge of God so that a greater knowledge of him will result in greater worship to him. He's given us his Bible. He's given us his word. Okay, church, pick it up. We can't be, we can't be in possession of such a grand and precious gift as the self-revelation of the creator of the universe to you and then let it just sit unopened. Because if you say that this is the word of God, if we say that this is the word of God and we don't take it up, I just don't know what we mean. Verse Three, verse three is blessing, ascribing praise to God, and then expounding from there through the end of 14 on why God is to be praised. Going on, note this. Note the threefold repetition of blessing in verse three. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So we always look for repetition when we read the Bible. Here Paul employs the same Greek word each time as he says, blessed be God who has blessed us with every blessing. It's a rep- the repetition is wordplay designed by the author to draw attention to the point. Bless God, he's blessed us with every blessing. And then adding to that, adding to that, notice the, another threefold structure to this verse that then provides the scaffolding for the remainder of the passage. In verse 3, we see all the persons of the Trinity. Blessed be God the Father. There's the Father. 
who has blessed us in Christ, there's the Son. With every spiritual blessing, there's the Spirit. Here, a brief period of Greeking out might be a little bit helpful. At first glance, we can be tempted to look at the word spiritual and think of it in terms like immaterial. Like, what kind of blessings are they? They're not material blessings, they're spiritual blessings. That's true, but I think that's what's in view when he says in the heavenly places. This would be how we like commonly use the word today, right? Like, if you say to somebody, are you religious? And they say, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. What do they mean? They mean, I do believe that there's something more than the material. I believe that there is something else. We might say, are you, oh, you're depressed? Is that a physical depression? By that, we would, say, we would mean, is it related to biology and, and so on? Or is that a spiritual depression by which, again, we would mean something more than immaterial? It's like, it's be something beyond biological. However, the New Testament word here, pneumatikos, Sam can tell me if I'm saying that right, he's taken some Greek, but uh, pneumatikos is almost always used to refer to the spirit, pneuma. So therefore, as we read here, it might be more helpful for you to think of the translation as with every blessing of the spirit. The word is being used as an adjective to modify the word blessing, so spiritual blessing is correct so long as when you read the word spiritual, you're thinking Holy Spirit. Greek session over. So, blessed be the God... Blessed be God the Father who has blessed us in Christ the Son with every blessing of the Spirit. We can start to see the threefold structure of verse 3 is more, more than that, also a Trinitarian structure. It involves all three persons of our triune God. And so going further... Once we can see the structure of verse 3, we can see how it serves as a topic sentence providing the structure for the remainder of the passage. Once we see that, we can see more clearly our main point this morning. We have a threefold structure in verse 3. It's a Trinitarian structure. And once we can see all of that and we can see that how it fleshes out in verses 4 through 14, we can see our main point come into focus. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul is going on in verse 4 through 14 with the Trinity as his outline for expounding on his praise to God. Look with me. In verse 4, through the first part of verse 6 in the ESV, Paul glories in the work of the Father, planning our salvation even before the foundation of the world. That's our sermon next week as we delve into the details of that. So predestination on week two of a church plant, there's no better time than now to just for you to know where we're at, okay? Then in the second half of 6, on through the end of verse 12, Paul's praise is glorying in the work of the Son, accomplishing our salvation. 
Matt will take us through that in two weeks. Then, verse 13 through 14, Paul's praise turns to glorying in the work of the Holy Spirit, applying that salvation to us, and uh, Lord willing, we'll dive deeper into that in three weeks. So, seeing the structure of this passage, look with me to see the common refrain that's repeated in each different section of this. Planned by the Father, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace." Our salvation was planned before the foundations of the world. To what end? To the praise of his glory. Then it's accomplished by the Son, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Pray for Matt. He's got a lot to cover on his week, okay? Uh, Our salvation was accomplished for us by God the Son to what end? to the praise of his glory. And then the third section, applied by the Spirit. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. You, we, all who have have trusted in Christ, we are the recipients of his marvelous, lavish grace, not as an end in itself, but that our lives would show off the glory of the God who created us. God's aim in creating humanity was to show off his glory. It's the whole story of the Bible. Genesis 1 God created the world and everything in it. He created man in his own image, and then he charged man to be fruitful and multiply. So what's supposed to happen is that the earth is supposed to be filled with little images of God, little worshipers of him. But then Genesis 3, sin enters the world, and immediately we see that it's not little worshipers that are filling the earth, but it's sin. We see Cain and Abel. We see Genesis 6, clearly something has gone awry as humanity and their sin has lost sight of their creator. Going on, God moved to set a part of people for himself, reissuing the charge at each major renewal of his covenant, be fruitful and multiply. 
And even when his people were under the discipline of exile, he promised a coming day when he would gather them in. Why does he save? As we read in the open of our service, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Through that people, he sent his son to die on the cross. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Okay, the Christian, the Christian is recreated, born again, made new in Christ, that as a new restored creation, the Christian can live out God's aim for humanity, namely that we live all of our life as worship to God. The Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, is then the New Testament restatement of that charge to go and fill the earth with worshipers. Go and proclaim the gospel that more and more would be redeemed, recreated in Christ to worship God. It's about worship. God's aim in recreating humans in Christ is to show off his glory. So some may say, so what? Yeah, 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 church, glory of God, yada, yada, yada. Why does that matter? It's so abstract. What am I even supposed to do with that? I'll tell you, the first time that I wrestled with these truths, it made me angry. Glory wasn't a thing that we talked about in my church growing up. Glory was just what Mr. Chuck yelled from the back when he got excited about the sermon. 2005, I was 18, senior year of high school, hopped in my little S10 pickup truck by myself. I tucked a picture in the visor of this girl that I'd just gone on a first date with. That's not pertinent at all, but it's true. Um, I made my way to Nashville for a Christian college conference, or Christian conference for college students, skipped a few days of school, had my mom's permission to do that. She's here. You can ask her. Uh, that just tells you the kinds of things I was getting into in high school, if you wanted to know. So there you go. Uh, one night, this, this old man in this cheap tweed coat walks to the stage, and he preaches God's God-centeredness. And I quote, do you feel more loved by God when he makes much of you? Or when he, at great cost to himself, enables you to enjoy making much of him forever? Which is it? They're not the same. One, you're at the center. The other God is at the center. End quote. So I heard that. I heard more about God's zeal for his own glory 
that God is most passionate about his own glory. And then we close the service. My friends are like, hey, I'm going to McDonald's. I'm like, hey, I'm going to go walk around Nashville fuming mad. Offended in my man-centered little heart. At the same time, cornered at every turn by God's word. Sometimes... The truth might offend us before it becomes a balm for our soul. That's okay. He's allowed to offend us. But this is paradigm shifting for me. I already loved Jesus, but no more could following Jesus be about him making much of me. Necessarily, following Jesus had to be about him blessing me, yes, And lavishly, but blessing me in Christ with every blessing of the Spirit to his end and purpose, to the praise of his glory. Church, we live in a culture that's just lost sight of their transcendent creator. Losing sight of him who's outside of us, over us, objective design that's beyond us, all we have left is to turn to what's right before us. So then at its best, our culture can pursue some aim, highest aim of like human flourishing. Or at its worst, you can make you the center of the universe. Do you live for your own happiness, live your truth, there's nothing higher to you, higher than you to tell you what's up, which all sounds nice for a little while. But if you're the center of it all, then you're the only solution you have. And I think you know in your most sober moments, you know that you're too fragile to hold it all together. As a culture that's lost sight of our transcendent creator, we can't even agree on basic truths anymore. Because everyone gets to define their own truth within them. It's nonsense, and it's not working for us. And it's all because we are disconnected from the very purpose for which we were made. (laughs) Meanwhile... All around us, all around us, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are on display, screaming to us through creation. I stood on the cliffs of Moore on the coast of Ireland last summer, sheer rock face, 500 feet to the, to the ocean and then the ocean waves just crashing against it. I didn't think to myself then, I'm really big. When I looked into the expansive grandeur of the Red Mountains in Arizona, I didn't think, it's all about me. And you don't even have to travel far to see that. Walk into your yard this afternoon, stop, pause, put away your phone, just Look, look at all the life of trees, bushes, flowers, carrying on without your help. 
the tiniest little seed just goes into the ground. With a little water, a little rain, it starts sprouting. And it pokes through the dirt and it grows into a beautiful flower. That's amazing. How does it happen? All of that is there to show off the creator's amazing glory and to scream to you through a megaphone, there's something outside of you and your life needs to be submitted under, to, under him who is outside of you. It's all about his glory. We weren't made to look inward. We were made to look outside of us to look beyond, to be captivated by the glory of our creator and then find our place under his good and gracious reign as he defines for us what is and what is good and what is evil. But listen, church, the problem's never just out there. If we swim in that pool all the week long, no doubt we've swallowed some of that water. So it's easy, is it not, to come even to church with our little self at the center. I'll come if it's meeting my needs or the suburban trump card that isn't. I'll come if it's meeting my family's needs. Then worship, community, discipleship, serving, they're all there for us as the consumer, take or leave, however meets our desire to self-express and seek our own flourishing in the way we, as our own little captains, see fit. Hear me. Of all places, Christ's church must never devolve into yet one more place coddling the pursuit of self with a thin veneer of man-centered Christianity. We, the church, can't coddle that. We have to be dispensing anti-venom for that. We love truth, and we love you too much to coddle that. Christ's church must be a place where we can all together look beyond us, behold the glory of God, because it's only in beholding his glory that we can then live rightly ordered lives underneath that higher purpose. When we behold his glory, our church life will no longer be about us. When we behold his glory, we can be freed from the illusion of control. He's on the throne. He's sustaining and orchestrating the cosmos. When we behold his glory, we walk away humbled, when we behold his glory, our affections for him will well up into an ongoing pursuit of him. It's all about his glory. And may Antioch Church, as an institution, always behold the transcendent glory of God and then seek to do all that we do, not as an end for Antioch Church, but may Antioch always be simply a conduit of worship to the God who deserves it all. May beholding him drive all that we do and may our zeal for his worship likewise propel us out with the gospel that he may receive the worship 
of others that he is rightly due. And may each and every family and individual here so behold the glory of God that it would drive us to him and worship. And may that chief aim then inform all of our subordinate aims. So let's go from here, church. Let's go from here desiring that God would be glorified through us. Let's go to our jobs desiring that there at our job, God would be glorified with us, let's, through us. May we go to our neighborhoods desiring that there we can live to the praise of his glory. May it lead us all to come before the Lord with a blank page. Whatever you want from me, Lord, it's yours. No sacrifice is too great when I behold your glory. I close with this as we move towards the Lord's Supper. There's another phrase that we see repeated all throughout this passage. Uh, and uh, we're going to come back to it more in the weeks ahead because it's a wonderful, jam-packed little phrase. Eleven different times in these verses, Paul uses some form of the phrase, in Christ, in him, or in the beloved. Far more than just being some kind of throwaway filler, the phrase speaks to our union with Christ. So, all of these blessings, all of this great salvation comes to us by our union with Christ. If you're here today and you're not a believer, first of all, we're glad you joined us today. Second, though, these blessings are not for you. They can be. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. These blessings are for those who, upon hearing the good news of Jesus Christ crucified on the cross for our sin, turn to him in belief and are made new by the Holy Spirit. The good news, this good news is laid out for you right now. You've lived your whole life up until now in this gross apathy to the glory of God who created you. But today, right now, you can turn to him in faith and repentance to resolve to live the rest of your life by God's help under the good and gracious reign of King Jesus as we move towards celebrating the Lord's Supper in a moment, that part of our worship service is for those who are already in Christ by faith. For you who haven't yet trusted Christ, we would ask you to let the elements pass and we would beg of you to pause during that time. Consider turning your life over to Jesus. If you are here today and you are already united to Christ by faith, then we invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. You don't have to be a member of Antioch, but you do have to be united to Christ by faith. And for those who have trusted in Christ, having gazed into the glories of the gospel this morning, 
having reflected on the weightiness of God and his glory. Let us all go out from here once again, stirred up, reminded, pricked in heart, to live out all of our days in worship to our gracious creator who is rightly due the worship of everyone on the planet. Let's pray with me. Father God, we, again, thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it's so beautifully put together. Lord, I pray that you would be with all of us now. Help us to behold you. Lord, wake us up. Break through our malaise, just going through the days. God, help us to behold your glory. Lord, may we taste and see a bit of that in such a way that will continue to keep us drawn back more and more all throughout the week, seeking to pursue you more and more. Father, I pray for any that would be here that don't know you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would do the gracious work of opening their eyes to see your glory and then come running to you. Father, we thank you for the grace poured out on us, all the blessings of the gospel. We thank you for all of that poured out on us. Help us to live now in response to that as conduits for your glory. Get your glory through us, Father. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.